You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. The Boy versus the Cynic, Chapter 1, Page 1. I'll start from the top. I'll embrace dreams again when I can breathe again, and at that point I won't be needing them. It became clear to me that I was fighting a war I couldn't win. You don't make it on your own merit, only royalty inherits the kingdom, and that's a system good intentions can't help. Your courage is not good here, so don't try to excel. What a sad day when you realize nothing can change. The revolution didn't leave you, it never came. There will be no parades, no royal balls, just long days topped off with last calls for alcohol. Go to sleep, wake up, and repeat the same routine, smooth skin dressed with wrinkles and brown eyes with dark rings, and entertainers sing of extremes that don't exist for you and me. When real life is reality TV, no wonder our youth don't believe in anything. It's all a joke. There are no heroes, just those of us with high hopes. It's just not that simple. I'm not trying to save it all, I just want to create a ripple, and even if one individual is affected, it's monumental with an unusual perspective that's beautiful in essence. Traditional thinking won't suggest this. Is life really that precious? Well, yes it is. But there will be no celebrations or congratulations, no pat on the back, just your mind intact, and the freedom to feel your heartbeat at the speed of life. Go to sleep tonight knowing you did it right and rest easy outside of a system that resents you for not doing what they expect you to do. Psychologically wear you down, and then they make the suggestion that you get on a prescription to deal with your depression. Anxious, lazy, temperamental, obese. That's what money makers like to call a disease, and they'll be looking for or creating new problems with profitable solutions to solve them. But you won't get any better. You'll just come back for more until your medicine drawer is filled with unreliable cures, and that's the way of the beast. And I can't do anything about it. I could shout it in a room that's crowded, but I doubt it'd make a difference. So ignorance will be my disguise, because 21st century America likes its witchcraft civilized. 21st century America likes its witchcraft civilized. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet. Coming to you for episode 101 of season 3, episode 166 of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. It is July 16th, 2021. Today we're going to talk about Facebook and the White House joining forces, teaming up against misinformation, saving us all from those pesky thoughts we have from time to time, which are not state approved. They're not FDA approved just like the COVID vaccine, not FDA approved. But first things first, let's make sure we get the talking points correct. And just like Jen Psaki signs off on the exact verbiage of what journalists can and cannot quote her as having said, they are going to make sure at Facebook that the White House is comfortable with what you share on Facebook, before it makes it to your friends and family list, before it makes it to the broader public, Facebook is going to double check with dear old Uncle Joe to make sure he's good with it. And if he nods his head, lifts his little finger, even by accident, even if he's just having a very lucid dream and he accidentally 
nods his head and lifts his finger. They'll let your post go through and broader society will possibly, maybe, if they feel like it, be influenced by your contribution. But if he's sleeping, if he doesn't like what you have to say, if he deems it dangerous to the collective good for you to think freely, to express your own concerns, reservations, ideas, objections, complaints, your own alternative solution to what he and Dr. Fauci are trying to accomplish, then kiss your influence goodbye because they are going to shut the door on you. I started out this episode with the lyrics for chapter one from the John Rubin album, The Boy Versus the Cynic. And I love this album. I got to see John Rubin perform it live in Columbus, Ohio many moons ago, close to 15 years ago. I got him to sign a poster of the cover art for this album and got to talk with him. And I just really appreciate how honest and raw this album is, The Boy Versus the Cynic. And it hit me at a time in my life when I was very much wrestling with whether to be naive, as older people seem to think it, or whether to jump on board with cynically following the crowd, cynically doing what everybody else was doing, what everybody else expected me to be doing, cynically accepting the contempt of anybody that I disagreed with and stowing my disagreement because heaven knows I wouldn't want people to dislike me. I was listening to this album a lot in my late teens, early 20s. And every now and then I still get kind of on a kick and I start listening to it again. But I love this one turn, right? He spends the first half of this track, chapter one, like it's a diary entry, right? He's just going to be really honest, really vulnerable. He's going to share with you his own private diary entries. And what he's writing in his diary is this wrestling with, what am I doing, right? Why? I'll embrace dreams again when I can breathe again. And at that point, I won't be needing them. It became clear to me that I was fighting a war I couldn't win. You don't make it on your own merit. Only royalty inherits the kingdom, and that's a system good intentions can't help. Your courage is not good here, so don't try to excel. What a sad day when you realize nothing can change. The revolution didn't leave you. It never came. Ouch. Oof. Brutal. Brutal. That rocks my world sometimes. Not that he said it, but that I feel it. Sometimes that rocks my world. There are some days, some weeks where I can't get past that. It is despair. It is cynicism. It is a woundedness, which is afraid to hope, which is afraid to try again. It is Pavlov's dog getting shocked. And at a certain point, giving up on trying to howl in pain or get out of the cage because it doesn't matter how much I jump, how much I yelp, the shocks are still coming. 
I'm not even going to bother. Or maybe I will because I'm not comfortable camping out there. I'm not comfortable resting in that. I don't find that satisfactory. That's no way to live. So there's this back and forth, back and forth. Do we accept that or do we reject that? And if we reject that, how do we reject that without being naive, without being ignorant of the reality of the situation? How do we maturely, wisely, circumspectly embrace the reality of the situation and engage it meaningfully? I love that you continue on and about halfway through, he stops this self-indulgent, reckless embrace of despair. And he says, it's just not that simple. I'm not trying to save it all. I just want to create a ripple. And even if one individual is affected, it's monumental with an unusual perspective that's beautiful in essence. Traditional thinking won't suggest this. Is life really that precious? Well, yes, it is. But there will be no celebrations and congratulations and a pat on the back, just your mind intact and the freedom to feel your heart beat at the speed of life. Go to sleep tonight knowing you did it right and rest easy outside of a system that resents you for not doing what they expect you to do. Psychologically wear you down and then they make the suggestion that you get on a prescription to deal with your depression. Okay, he talks about this idea at the very tail end there that society resents anybody who rejects the core tenets by which the zeitgeist has decided we're going to all live our lives. Reject that, oppose that, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, and the world will hate you for it because they hated Jesus first, they hated Christ first. There's lots of other reasons why somebody might hate you, but for the Christian in particular, specifically for the purposes of this discussion, The world will hate you because the world hated Christ. And if you are a disciple of Christ, trying to be like the master, the world will hate you like it hated Christ. And yet, he says, it's just not that simple, John Rubin does. I'm not trying to save it all. I just want to create a ripple. And even if one individual is affected, it's monumental with an unusual perspective that's beautiful in essence. Traditional thinking won't suggest this. Is life really that precious? Well, yes, it is. Is life really that precious? Well, yes, it is. You know, I was thinking about this yesterday on my errand running, and I was thinking about it the day before that on my drive home from work, and I was thinking about it the day before that, and so on and so forth. You get the picture. I've been thinking about this quite a lot. How many people have to listen to this podcast in order for it to be worthwhile, in order for this to be worth doing? And I got to talking with my wife yesterday morning before I went out and ran some errands. I went to the doctor, saw an allergy and asthma specialist here in Greeley, two miles from our house, which is fantastic. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us to Colorado. But we got an allergy test. Looks like insurance is going to cover allergy shots 100%, which is awesome. Thank you, God. But I'm talking with my wife about having this Excel spreadsheet where I'm trying to keep track of metrics on the podcast's performance and I want to keep track of what season I'm in, what episode I'm in, the date that I published, how many plays each episode has got, how long each episode is, the titles, and then I can at a glance keep perspective on 
what I'm doing as I go. I can make sure that there's a consistency. I can make sure that there's not a monotony that sets in. And I told her, I said, I'm at 100 episodes since January 1st, as of yesterday, 100 episodes. And I'm talking back and forth with her about it. And how when I look back to last October when I kickstarted it again, my least listened to episodes then got half or a third as many listens as my least listened to episodes now. And on a pretty consistent basis, and if I give people a week or two, I'm still getting pretty much my core audience. I can tell there's a core audience. Visitors besides that come and go on certain episodes. You can see some episodes are getting shared outside of this core group. But that core group has grown by about three or four times since I started doing this again last October. And even if it hadn't, right, how many people would be enough listening for it to be worth doing, for it to be worth my time, worth my trouble? Am I contributing to the life of you right there, you listening to this right now? Am I improving the quality of your life by getting you to think about these things, by exposing you to these ideas and these concepts and these connections potentially, possibly, maybe, maybe not, even in ruling out a connection, if we just examine it briefly and say, hey, is there a tie here? Even if you rule out the connection, you've still hopefully come to understand the two points that you were considering better if you can articulate now why those two things are not connected. Yeah, but what about this? Oh, mm, that's a good point. Because obviously, if the connection seemed like it was a possibility at first blush, we hadn't the depth of understanding of those things that we do on the other end after we've considered the connection. But you got to consider it. you got to do the math. you got to show your work. I love that John Rubin says, is life really that precious? Well, yes, it is. Right? Don't even wait. It's like you're in rush hour traffic and you don't want to provide enough of a gap between you and the car in front of you for somebody else to slip in. Let's leave no daylight between that question and the answer so that nothing else has the opportunity to slip in there. We're not going to hang out on asking, is life really that precious? No. In the affirmative, it is. Period. Life is that precious. Our big question at the beginning, middle, and end of the day should be, why did God put me here? Why am I here? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I supposed to be doing this? Am I supposed to be doing something else? How can I serve God in this moment? What talents has he invested me with? What opportunities has he invested me with? Your answer to that is going to be different by God's grace. And thank God that it is different. Variety is the spice of life. You can go too far in that, and people can use that as an excuse to mix in all kinds of bad, muddied thinking and to tolerate and embrace muddied ways of thinking because they want to throw out all standards. But diversity as a self-evident truth is baked into the equation by God's design. We read about it in Corinthians when the Apostle Paul compares the body of Christ to a physical body, compares the church to a physical body. 
different members have different gifting, have different abilities. No one member has all the gifts. And the purpose of that is one member cannot say to all the others, I have no need of you. So that's how the church is supposed to function. And when the church functions that way, when we on a personal level function that way, when we orient our homes to function that way, where we recognize each and every single member of our household as being here on purpose for a purpose, our family needs you. That distinctive quality, flavor, temperament, personality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that God created you with, he intended you to bring into our family and express to his glory and to our benefit. And in that, you will find your benefit. You'll find a blessing for you, son, daughter, wife, self. As the church embraces that, as we as individual believers embrace that, we model something for broader society, which society right now more than ever in America's history needs to be reminded of and it needs to be seeing. I would contend that liberty, American style, historically, only makes sense. It only came about because that live and let live in a biblical sense was embraced here to a greater extent than it had been back in the old world and really in any other context. This tension between having a standard or a generally agreed upon set of standards for what is good conduct, what is godly. We're going to use the Ten Commandments as the basis for our morality and for our laws. Having that and also at the same time a toleration of disagreement. That's what freedom of speech is predicated on. That's what the right to keep and bear arms is predicated on. That's what freedom of religion, Congress shall make no law concerning the establishment of religion or the prohibition thereof. That's what that's based on. And the more we get separated from the convictions and the ideas of Protestant Christianity, which inspired the republic that is America, the more confused people are as to why we need to keep these things around. The more confused they are because there's no context. It doesn't make sense. It's like when I'm at work and I'm rummaging through our parts. I walk into a Connex C container and I see a box of just random parts. There's some flange bolts in here. There's a gasket. There's some car seals. I see some swedges, some nipples. I see just random assorted parts. What's this? Huh, there's some kind of an electronic board in bubble wrap. Super dirty, does it still work? What does it go to? Why is it not in the thing that it should be in? Is this a spare part? Or is this a part that was pulled out of service because it was faulty? Does it still work? Or has it been sitting in this drawer with random other things that it's not supposed to be in? It's in bubble wrap for a reason for the exact same reason that you wouldn't put it in a box with flange bolts and pipe fittings. That's what our society right now is like when the younger generations than mine take a look at free speech. They don't understand the need for it. Why do we need free speech? People might use it to say hateful things. People might say things that aren't true. Well, <laughs> yes, uh, 
duh. But people also might try to infringe on free speech because they don't want the truth to come out. Have you considered that? People might also infringe on free speech because they're hateful, because they hate anybody who disagrees with them, because they're selfish brats who didn't get a spanking in their life. And now they throw tantrums. And now they're very sophisticated tantrum throwers. And so sometimes they join three-letter agencies of the United States government and they get unlimited power because that's what their whole life has been about. That's what their childhood was about, was never hearing no from mommy and daddy because mommy and daddy read Dr. Spock. And they latched on to the ideas of Dr. Spock about self-esteem and not disciplining your children because mommy and daddy were selfish too. And not having to be distracted by paying attention to whether they were disciplining their child made it easier and more convenient for them to go off into sex, drugs, and rock and roll themselves. So now these little children who grew up in the 60s and the 70s and the hippie movement, the anti-war Vietnam protests, spit on the troops when they come back from serving even though they were draftees and they didn't really want to go in the first place, but now we're going to call them baby killers. Those kids grew up and they're bureaucrats and they're FBI agents sometimes and they're NSA agents sometimes. And they're IRS agents sometimes. And sometimes they get cush jobs as political analysts. Sometimes they get jobs working for a radical and also dementiatic president of the United States, resident of the United States of America. Sometimes this critical mass of brats who aren't used to being told no, try to suppress free speech, and they try to get everybody on board with thinking that it's valid and it's justified for you to just silence anybody that disagrees with them. They try to do it in very clever ways because it's a game now. This is the game that they play. Can I get my way? Can I push the boundaries? Can I make myself the only exception to these universal principles and thereby, in some measure, get all of these people to validate me being the center of my own universe so that I don't feel guilty, so I don't have a hard time sometimes living with myself for the way that I treat people. It isn't just that free speech is important when you hear speech that you like. Free speech is important more so so that you hear speech that you don't like because sometimes we need to be told things that we don't want to hear. And just like I said before, Sometimes on this program, for example, I'm going to say, hey, is there a connection between this and this? And you're going to say, I really don't think there is because X, Y, Z. No. Well, that's a good point. Okay. Back to the drawing board. Now I understand this better for you having laid out the case for X, Y, Z and there not being a connection, at least in the way that I thought that there was between these two things. Thank you. You've just helped me. But that whole process for you and for me and for everybody is aborted like an unwanted baby when we say that the White House and Jen Psaki and Joe Biden are going to call up Mark Zuckerberg and his people and decide who of us gets to disagree with Dr. Fauci and quote unquote the science and who doesn't. 
It won't stop with COVID. It didn't start with COVID. This was already something that was trending in that direction before COVID, and COVID was just an accelerant. It was just the nitro. It was just the boosters. COVID has been used as a convenient excuse to take away your liberty, to overthrow even the semblance of traditional Americana. The new normal that they want is the America that they've had in their imagination, this utopian Marxist pipe dream for the past 40, 50 years. Obama, Biden, Kamala Harris, AOC, Bernie, Elizabeth Warren, these are radical people who don't think that America and liberty are such good things. So Facebook is going to say, you can't post that. You can't share that. You can't write that. You can't comment that. You can't tell people that. You're getting a 24-hour ban. You're getting a seven-day ban. You're off our platform forever. You can stay so long as you never get any influence. Once you start getting influence, people start sharing what it is that you're posting, start taking you seriously, then we're going to nip you in the bud. Like we're gardeners and you're a weed. That's how they think of it. They're so egotistical. They're such arrogant jerks. We really ought to feel very profoundly sorry for them because judgment is coming. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. A lot of people read that and they think of that and they quote that first and foremost as a way of telling somebody to calm down. Hey, you know what? You're getting a little worked up. Leave it to the Lord to avenge that. That's not your place. How often do we think about what a scary thing that is? I was talking with J.P. Chavez here recently in the past week or so, and we were kicking back and forth this whole idea, this popular idea in society that only God can judge me. Only God can judge me. It's a tattoo. It's a saying. Lots of gangster, criminal, drunk and high all the time, living like Satan. People latch on to this, and that's their mantra. Only God can judge me. Okay. Well, first off, that's not true. (laughs) Uh, I mean, uh, first off, (laughs) no. (laughs) Pretty sure we can all judge you. We might not judge you correctly, Only God can judge you eternally as in whether you go to heaven or you go to hell. And based on your lifestyle right now and the fact that you're trying to tell us all that only God can judge you, methinks the lady doth protest too much that you're not confident in your eternal security. But there was a version of this that was a meme here years ago. My cousin Brent in eastern Montana sent it to me. I believe it was Brent. It was probably Brent. Anything off the wall from before we moved to Colorado, I usually give credit to my cousin Brent for having shared with me. But it was this very slutty-looking girl, lady, woman in her 20s, and she's taking a selfie in the mirror and all just like caked up in makeup and just not dressed in a modest way. And the caption says, only God can judge me. And then there's another pane down below, and it's this Renaissance painting, probably Michelangelo or Da Vinci painting of God looking down from heaven and saying, you're a whore. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> funny. Uh, not entirely appropriate, but true, right? True. Um, you know, only God can judge me. Sometimes that really is important to remember. And that's true with regards to ourselves. And we should think first and foremost about where do we stand in relation to God? Are we being humble? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Are we being teachable? Are we being faithful? Are we being good stewards? Are we investing the talents that he's given us? But second, when it comes to other people, that's a large part of why love should provoke us to call for repentance. Because yes, and actually, only God can judge you eternally, and that should scare you, as JP's meme that he shared with me put it. That should scare you. Only God can judge me. That should scare you. Judgment, apart from repentance and faith in Christ as the only begotten Son of the Father, his atoning sacrifice for our sins, just as it was written, only that separates us from judgment, rightly deserved. We are rebels against the true and rightful king of the universe. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Facebook and the White House joined forces and now they're going to flag, quote-unquote, misinformation. They become the ultimate arbiters of truth. What you can say, what you can think, what you can feel, what you can hear other people saying, thinking, feeling. Misinformation, according to one of the New York Times senior tech writers. His name escapes me at the moment, but I talked about him late last year. He said that, Actually, factual, true stories can be misinformation if they cause people to not do what we want them to do. In other words, Michel Foucault, claims to truth are a power play. The people who embrace that cynical view most ardently typically are the most guilty of engaging in it. And they just want to tell themselves and everybody else that everybody does it so that they can give themselves an excuse, so that they can live with themselves. If there is no such thing as truth, and it doesn't matter whether I'm telling the truth because the ends justify the means, because I have a utilitarian ethic, because I'm Machiavellian, because I pretend at virtue for the simple rubes, the simple common people who are superstitious, who believe in that sort of thing, so I can manipulate them, maneuver them into position, make use of them, dispose of them as I please. Those folks do use truth claims as a power play. And they can do that one of two ways. They can say, ah, this is true. This thing is true and you have to believe it or else you have to affirm this or else. Or they can do it the other way where when you bring facts to bear which don't flatter their egos and their narrative and their agenda and their status quo, they will seek to destroy and have your evidence thrown out. Only because 
it is inconvenient to what they want. The truth is so very, very important. The truth is so critically important, and that's always been the case. Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And he's talking about the truth about God and the truth about him as the Messiah. But that truth, it can't be confined to just one little corner in the attic of our minds. If it be true, it has to be transformative to every thought. Every thought now has to be fundamentally transformed in a good way, not in the nasty, dirty, awful, evil, perverse, corrupt, tyrannical way that former President Barack Obama tried to fundamentally transform America, but in a good way. Like the beast, when he receives his true love's kiss from Belle in The Beauty and the Beast, all of a sudden he's being transformed into this new man. A man, actually, not a beast. He's being transformed into a man. And so with him also his household servants who had become pieces of furniture and animate, inanimate objects, they're transformed back again into people. And his home is transformed back again into this beautiful castle from being this broken down horror. That's a symbolic picture of what happens when the transformative truth of the gospel takes every thought captive, when it pervades every aspect of our worldview. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The struggle is the glory. I got to leave it there. I got people coming to our Jackson Lake facility today. I need to be there ahead of them, make sure everything's ready, primed, prepped, so I can do my part, so they can do their part. But as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.